Welcome to The Pestle, reviewing and breaking down movies to look for insights into the movie-making process. Hosted by True Crime, reopening trauma for easy ratings instead of writing new material. Now, let's dim the lights and start the show. <laughs> Welcome, everybody, to The Pestle. Today's show is brought to you by Soul Sewing Machines, the sharpest needlework since the 80s. Cross my heart, hope to die. Choose Soul's Sewing Machines. welcome everybody to the pestle i am wes and i am todd and we are filmmakers so we attempt to bring the pittance of knowledge uh of the filmmaking world into analyzing and discussing these films that we cover on a week to week basis i think that's the goal (laughs) so yeah not always what happens not always what happens we shall see what happens today. What are we What are we going to take a look at today, man? Today, uh, we're covering the new film that's out just now called The Northman. So if you haven't seen it, please pause this episode and go watch it because we're going to spoil a bunch of stuff. All the things. Uh, we'll look at some of the cinematography, uh, the story and writing, learning is fun, and other such stuff and things and stuff. And a quick synopsis of the film. A young Viking prince vows to avenge his father's murder. Written and directed by Robert Eggers. Cinematography by Jaren Balaski. Sure. Uh, starring Alexander Skarsgård as Amleth. Nicole Kidman as Queen Gudrun. Clay's Bang as Folnir. Ethan Hawke as King Arvindil. Uh, Willem Dafoe as Hamir. And Anna Taylor-Joy as Olga. And Bjork as the Seeress. You behold your brother's gaze in amazement. I knew, well, you would. Pity you never paid a bastard's eyes heed before. Now, behold how swiftly your brother swings his sword. Strike, brother. Strike. But know that bearing a stolen ring makes no half-breed a king. Soaked in my blood, it will soon be sliding off your arm like a serpent. Your kingdom will not last. Let this misdeed haunt your living nights, till a flaming vengeance gorges on your death. Strike. Strike! What did you think? I mean, I don't. I didn't really know what to expect walking into this thing. Robert Eggers is kind of a master of period pieces at this point. The layer of authenticity that he's going to, you know, try to bring um, is always going to be just worth it on its own, right? Whether we're talking about The Witch or The Lighthouse, and this is only his third film, and so it's cra- kind of crazy to think. He's already got it like an oeuvre <laughs> uh, that everything fits into um, so early in his filmmaking career. But walking in, I don't, I'm, I'm guessing you didn't know what to expect. Uh, so I'm just curious if this hit the mark or if, uh, I don't know, was it, was it just not as much as you were hoping for or more than? So I, I, I thought it was amazing. I, I loved, I loved it. So here's the thing with movies like this that like scare me 
is that they try to be too one thing. Like they try to be like, okay, this is going to be super ethereal. A bunch of, you're going to see a bunch of imagery that you really have to think about. Like, how does this tie in? What is this? Um, you're constantly berated by stuff, by like random images of just uh, beauty, but beauty that you have to then assign a meaning to, right? And it's not, it's not obvious that, oh, this is here for that. And then there's the other aspect of like, oh, it's just too straightforward of a story. And it's just kind of boring because I've seen this story before, because we've seen this story for hundreds of years. This is the, this is, this is the um, King Lear or whatever. It is. This is like the Shakespearean thing. They, you know, I must avenge my father. We've seen this forever, but I've never seen it like this. This is so, it's, it's an experience from the beginning to end. And it has all of that stuff built in. I feel like there are these wonderful ethereal moments where we see, you know, things like the, his heart opening up to the tree uh, his dad's heart opening up to the tree. There's, there's, there's also, they do a brilliant job of not really publicizing who's in this film. I had no idea who that Ethan Hawke was going to be in it. Alexander Skarsgård, like, and if you don't, if you're not good with faces, and this is a question I'm going to ask you, if you're not good with faces, it's very hard to see Ethan Hawke in this. Like his voice is like, you've never heard him talk before. He's got this deep grumbly growly voice. So you don't expect you know, that it's somebody that you have ever heard before, seen before because you've never heard this voice before. And there were a couple, I didn't notice him at first, but then when they, they did a couple of close-ups on him and I thought, I know that they, that's Ethan Hawke. I, it took me a second, but then I got it. And I, and all of a sudden I'm drawn into the movie a little bit more, right? Every time I see a new face, you know, when you, you see Willem Dafoe, you're like, okay, I'm drawn in a little bit more then you, then I notice that it's Ethan. I'm drawn in a little bit more. I see Bjork a little later with the Cirrus drawn in more. And it did this really great job of like, and they don't have large roles, you know, they're just there a little bit and then they're gone. So it, it pulled me in a little bit here, a little bit there, a little bit here, a little bit there. The, um, I thought all of the times where it got really, you know, kind of like mystical were important and valid and made sense to push the narrative forward. Every time we see the tree, it's, it's in his mind, he's seeing the tree and it helps him make his decisions of where his bloodline's going to go. The actions he has to take immediately following. I thought the acting was fantastic and really difficult, really difficult. This is not like a, uh, I don't know, crazy, stupid love, right? Where you have a Mm. script and you're you're delivering lines to each other, and it's just about that that just that delivery with each other, interaction with each other. It's it's multi layered because you know these people have to have accents, they have to be accurate, they have to be delivering lines that they would you know a thousand years ago in a way that they saying words that they would say a thousand years ago. It's just and it's excellently executed in every single way. I just absolutely adored it the whole time. I couldn't take my eyes off the screen. It's amazing. Wow. I thought it was a masterpiece, to be honest. Nice. It, it was it was awesome. Yeah. Now I'm very curious as to what you thought and and how, how quickly you noticed Ethan Hawke. Uh I don't think you noticed Bjork you mentioned earlier. I did but... not see Bjork. Like that yeah. when you said that just now before we started rolling, I was like, wait, what? Bjork is it? Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, she's not exactly, you know, like a yeah, everyday known American face to everybody. Yeah. yeah. Um, but I picked up on Ethan Hawke immediately. That is amazing. 
how the hell because i i look for very because i don't recognize faces very well uh, almost at all like i have to pick up very specifics and so i do memorize specific features of people's faces and so i have like this rolodex in my head of oh sharp cheeks because ethan hawk has these very sharp um cheeks uh, and high high cheekbones right and he's got this like mark coming around the the top of his his cheekbones and then he's also got these very specific tooth structure and so i look at uh, those kind of two things i'm like oh ethan hawk <laughs> like oh it's you <laughs> you just noticed it i didn't <laughs> uh, but i struggled a little bit more with alexander skarsgård but luckily i knew it was him coming in and so that one didn't throw me at all and i think because it's you know scandinavia and he's scandinavian i don't know what part he's from where i'm, I'm assuming the same part his father's from <laughs> <laughs> probably probably right um but yeah so i was able to i did lose track of willem dafoe i recognized them immediately so i had a, a odd slightly odd experience with this where, where i signed up alamo draft house uh, a week ago sent out an email blast that's like hey if you want to catch an early mo- screening of a movie sign up and they don't tell you what movie it is and so you walk in and they just play a bunch of commercials or whatever previews, not just regular ads. Uh, it's not like I'm watching Toyota trucks right before, you know, this rolls. And so what was, what was odd about it for me, not necessarily that part that, that, you know, I got to see it, you know, a few days early, but that we didn't know what we were going to watch. And I got seated in this tiny packed out theater, uh, with maybe like 30 seats. And this woman next to me was, I could hear her talking to her husband, like, Oh, I wonder if it's going to be the new Thor because during the pre-roll, they're playing all these, uh, if you're not familiar with the Alamo draft house, they do the kind of these comedic sketches, um, that tie into the, the, the movie. So if you're about to go watch whatever, a world war two film, they might play like GI Joe cartoons or something of that ilk, right? Uh, mash reruns, uh, clips here and there of all these random things. And so during the uh, the pre-roll, they were showing like this cartoon breakdown of Norse mythology. And so you start to get the feeling like, oh, we might be watching something um, Norse related. And my first thought was, oh, I wonder if it's the Northman, which would be weird because it's not that early of a screening. Like we're this is coming out in a few days. But the woman next to me was like, oh, I wonder if it's the new Thor, whatever the new Thor is called. Right. And she got really excited about that prospect <laughs> and I was like, Oh, cause I have not enjoyed the, the, the tone of the last Thor uh, presentation. And so I was like, Oh, me and this woman would not get along. And the movie starts rolling. And of course it's the Northman. And literally she spends, I don't know, 70% of the movie whimpering because it's, it's a violent film. And so literally she starts like making these big gestures of covering her eyes and, literally i don't know another word to describe other than she's whimpering into like her her friends or husbands i don't know whoever this guy is that she was with into his shoulder so it was just weird and distracting but i still really enjoyed it now i fled the minute the the credits hit uh so if there's a post roll action i don't know no but i went to see it again and enjoyed it so much more the second time for sure but i overall man yeah i loved it i it took me a little while to figure out how do I feel about this? Because you're right. It is a perfect blend of ethereal kind of ruminative imagery, but they pair it really well with meaningful sequences. 
So like, oh, we're not just going to sit in the ether for 10 minutes. We're going to sit there for 30, 40 seconds. And now we're going to watch him pillage a, vi- uh, a village, right? We're going to see him, what he's really like as an adult. We're going to uh, spend these crucial moments of seeing a plot form in his mind and the ruthless like approach that he's going to take whenever he decides to make himself a slave. I was just like, Oh wow. You have like, there no, was no he just went straight to it. There was no contemplating or pay. He just like, boom, cut his hair. Let's go. Branded yeah. himself. It was amazing. Yeah. That was amazing. And it wasn't until the second time through that I realized, Oh, this is Hamlet. It only dawned on me. And it was a, that realization came over the course of like, I don't know, 60 seconds. Cause I was just thinking about the naming convention. I was like, I don't understand these names. That first viewing, I couldn't remember anyone's name. Like these are such foreign names to me. I had the same problem reading the three body problem where I'm just like, all these names are so foreign. I can't assign them to anybody. And I had that experience here where I'm just like, I don't know what a fuel near is. Um, and I couldn't differentiate that as a word in itself. Um, it took me half the movie just to start hearing the word Fjolnir, um, let alone, I never heard the King's name the entire two times I watched this. I never heard his name. It was just King something, Queen something. And Amleth, I finally started hearing uh, really well on the second viewing. And I just started thinking, was was there a name convention here? Amleth. Oh, it's like Hamlet, except the, the H has moved to the end of the word. Okay. Oh, so this is a, and I started thinking about Hamlet, which I'm not good on Shakespeare. I don't remember Shakespeare, even though I obviously have a lot of reverence for Shakespeare. I'm not that intimately familiar with all these stories. And you could easily fool me between Hamlet and Macbeth, even though I'm I'm somewhat familiar with both of those stories. I would confuse them in a heartbeat. Uh, If you wanted to pull one over my eyes, uh, you wouldn't have a hard time. And so I was like, wait. And I literally started running through the Hamlet story. I was like, wait, oh, no, I'm thinking of Macbeth. Macbeth, Hamlet. Okay. Oh, that's right. Hamlet has been retold, like you said, like dozens and dozens of times. Like even Disney has done their version of Hamlet. Gladiator is a version of Hamlet. And so you start, I started thinking about that and I was like, wait, but this takes place way, maybe this is, and I started thinking about Robert Eggers because Robert Eggers is a, from what I can gather, like really big into historical accuracy and I was like, oh, I wonder if actually this is what Hamlet is based on. And I started thinking about it from that standpoint, because um, you have the Seeress, you have Hymir, who's called a witch, right? That's what uh, the uncle, the murderous uncle calls him, like, you know, shut your mouth, witch, or some, something along those lines. And so I started kind of playing with the idea of Robert Eggers being this fan. Maybe this is what uh, Hamlet is based on, which a quick Google revealed. Probably so. I just looked at the wiki for for Amleth. Um, and it seems like this is now how he went about writing and formulating that story. I assume it's a mixture of trying to own the Hamlet version, right? How do you one up Shakespeare in one of the greatest plays ever written? Well, maybe you can take it back by telling the original story that Hamlet was based on. Uh, and so that's a really interesting concept of we're going to take back something from Shakespeare, <laughs> And I feel like that's what was going on here. Um, and so you sit down probably with some historians and uh, you go through the books and you start to say, okay, what did maybe Hamlet do that was done really well? And how can we apply that to this original mythos? And that's kind of the fun about this kind of story. I think for me, especially is watching something like this. I am really engaged with 
all the cultural knowledge that I feel is inserted into there, right? You, you see like the, the rite of passage and you see him like growling and gathering around this fire with this, uh, I don't know, witch, whatever you want to call him. And he's prophesying and they're, they're, they're drinking something. And then you realize about halfway through they're, they're probably hallucinating some, you know, Scandinavian form of ayahuasca or something. And it's just the berserker ritual, right? Around the bonfire when they're all just getting savage and getting into their primal baser instincts. And I love the combination of those kinds of moments that I could see possibly being rooted in something real, combining that with the mythos, right? The dream sequences where you're exploring more of the Norse mythology but without losing the grounded reality, because by making them these, whatever hallucinations or fantasies, you can, you can stay grounded for us, the audience, like, Oh, while also giving us the experience. Don't tell us it's a fantasy until, until we're done, but it doesn't feel like a cheap dream sequence. It, I love that he managed to do that. None of it felt cheap because that's the the struggle you usually run with doing a dream sequences. You give us this crazy outlandish experience and then you kind of take it away by saying, "Ah, eh, it wasn't real." Here, you don't ever really know if it was real or not. Like they blur that line very very well uh in the storytelling. And so, whenever he has that rite of passage and we're floating and we're hearing a prophecy, you begin to say, "Oh, this is a hallucinatory," but it still feels connected. It never feels like this this ripple in space time, right? That it ends now. It just becomes something that lasts and it just blurs and blends together. The fight for the sword, uh, sword with a, with, with whatever that was, that felt very God of war. I assume, uh, where you're just having to earn this, a magical, you know, prop that was amazing. Um, because, you start to feel like, oh, he's approaching this thing, but it doesn't feel dead. And you start waiting for it to wake up. And then it does. And you're like, yes, I want this. I really, really want this experience. And he defeats him. And then he kind of comes to, and then he rips the the sword out and the thing falls apart. It all felt earned. It never felt cheap. Yeah. That's so hard to do. And I was just kind of in awe of his storytelling uh, prowess to be able to accomplish all those things. Same thing with the, uh, being saved by Olga, right? He's saved by her, and, and now we're imagining. I don't know if that was her, if that was another actress with the. No, I think it was another actress. It the, looked like with her. the the Valkyrie. Yeah, yeah, I think it was another actress. Okay, good. See, this is where they get me. <laughs> like, I don't. <laughs> y'all are doing a lot there. <laughs> yeah, I don't think that's Anya Taylor Joy, but you win. Yeah, and it's this beautiful sequence of him being taken by a Valkyrie into Valhalla, and then he wakes. And so it's a, it's, it's a really beautiful, and then of course that final shot of him riding into Valhalla and we just leave on that note. It's beautiful. It allows us to buy into their reality, into their, their mythos, uh, without ever ripping it away from you, the audience by saying it wasn't really real. Like we don't know it was real to them and that's real enough for us. Um, and great, that, you know, that's, that's just such a beautiful approach, I think. So I have a question really quick. Uh, one name that we didn't include in the, in, the, in the list there was Nicole Kidman. And I was curious. Yeah. And I was no, curious what name. you thought. Yeah. She's did second I, name. Did I say it? Yeah. Oh, there it is. Duh. Never mind. Well, I was curious what you thought of her performance. I was back and forth. She's, 
I will say she's an incredible actor and she's having an amazing career. Right. Like if you were to kind of go through the last 20 years of her, her catalog, uh, you would see some really fantastic blends of pop culture stuff along with high art house kind of films, you know, the, I think, you know, the human stain or something like that, you know, she's just got this really incredible career going. And while she has the, uh, I don't know, the look for this film, I was a little back and forth on buying into her. There were moments where I was a little more into it and moments where I was a little more pulled out. But I think when it came down to it, the moments that she really needed to sell, she sold like that creepy moment between her and her son um, where you think, oh, my God, is she really uh, willing to do anything right? Uh, and you start to wonder, is he buying into this? Uh, and of course, you know, that doesn't last long, but I, I was there, I was right there with her. Uh, and that was such a well paced moment and such a well framed moment, the way we just kind of keep closing in and then, and then as she's closing in and then, and then that you can't help, but get frozen (laughs) in her power. Um, and so I was a little, I was a little all over the place. Um, but I would say 80% of it. I was bought in and then those, but that 20% kind of does a little bit of damage. Um, I think it was the accent. I think if she had just abandoned the accent and just stayed, that might've worked a little bit better for me. But I think something with her rolling her R's just kind of yanked me away from time to time. Uh, What about you? Did you have any issues or were you just there the whole time? No, I felt the same. I felt like her accent at times, not always, Mm -hmm. was like distracting that's the best way I could put it would be distracting, not like bad necessarily, but mm-hmm. I don't really know because Bjork's R's, I mean, I mean, obviously she's Icelandic, so, but her R, she rolls her R's like crazy, right? And uh, so Nicole did that, but it was at times it was just like, and I was trying to separate my, I was trying to separate my knowledge of her from her accent. Instead of just saying, which is very hard to do because I'm not super familiar with Icelandic accent um, hmm. spoken, you know, like sung. Yeah, I've been listening to Bjork for 20 years, so I know what it's sung, it sounds like, but like, you know, speaking, it's it's different. And so I was trying to separate because I, yeah, I know what Nicole Kidman sounds like when she speaks. So, but, but I love, I did love her in the role and the the freaky moments especially the payoff at the end where she tells him that she, that, you know, she wanted her, his, her father's brother to kill him and, and to kill him. She wanted him dead too. And it was just like, wow, she's so, it was so, so evil. And like you said, I was right there with her and you know how I feel about like violence against children. But I felt like in these cases, it was necessary. There were two moments or three, three moments particular that I, like noticed obviously there was a lot of violence with everyone women children whatever but the first one was the first time we see the main character rowing in the boat and there was a father and son in a canoe next to them and they just the main vikings just shoot them with arrows just kill them for no reason and they'd laugh that was net it was awful but it was necessary to show the the extreme violence that this group of people is is not not necessarily willing just like wanting to inflict on the world right so that was necessary 
And then, you know, the burning of all the people in the, in the, in the building after they raid it, which by the way, that whole raid scene was so amazing, <laughs> was so amazing, so amazing and necessary also, because one of the other things that I felt in this movie more than I think any other like Viking period piece that I've seen is just the extreme, not just violence, but hardship of life, right? The whole time I was feeling like, oh my God, I would die immediately if I lived here, <laughs> you know, immediately. I would just be dead. <laughs> I would be born and I'd be dead. And I felt that the whole time it was so stressful. Um, but then the third time, the third moment I was speaking about was, you know, right after she, she attacks him or something and he ends up killing her, uh, his mother. And then the, the kid jumps out and starts stabbing him. He had to kill that kid because otherwise that kid is a loose end yeah. that then could not be, his family would not be safe. Yeah. And the whole reason he's there is to keep his family safe. So, um, and, and because he, he has to rid the world of these people. So. Absolutely. And it's funny because you, you feel that two different times, that exact same idea you feel at the beginning of the film when his uncle orders for his head. Yes. Yes. And then you feel the injustice of it um, in that moment. And then, but at the end of the film, it feels more natural. Uh, and it's such a yeah. funny thing. It's just a matter of who you're rooting for. Um, and it has nothing to do with the ideology of it. Yeah. Yeah. And then, and one other thing, and the last, last thing I'll say, really, well, maybe, I don't know. I love the order of things, right? How, how the king comes home and you, and with these films, all medieval films, all Viking films, like, you know, there's a king and you never know, is this guy going to be an asshole <laughs> or is he going to be a good father, you know? And we're immediately shown he's a good father, right? Mm -hmm. Or that he loves his son, yeah. you know? And I loved that. I, I absolutely love that. You know, he's indifferent to his wife kind of, but he loves his son. And, and then they have that moment where he, he, like, he won't even make love to his wife. He, he comes home after a season. He's like, no, I have to do this with my son. It's like, that's the, his main focus. He has that moment with his son right before he's killed by his brother. And so the, the scene where the guy, where the, the, the guard tackles him and is about to kill him and then he cuts his nose off, you kind of, and then he's rowing away like, I will avenge you. Da, da, da. That is understandable because of what that kid just went through. He just shed his last tear. You know, he, he was, he became a man right before this happened. It was just a perfect timing situation. Mm. And for us as a viewer, we get to see him go through this like crazy hardship thing to write a passage, I guess, to become a man before he has to do the unthinkable, you know, leave his mother who's being taken hostage, quote unquote, leave the not avenge his father yet because he knows he can't because uh, he's too young and and be patient but he he just became a man and so he understands that because of what his father had just told him it's and great. i love how that his mantra right his promise to himself i'll avenge you father i'll save you mother i love how that sets us up for the betrayal twist like great point when you get to the end of the film all you're expecting all i was expecting was he needs to save his mother because she needs saving and so i never once considered that she was in on the plot which is a pretty great feat. That's normally the kind of thing you would suspect early on, especially because Hymir predicts it like twice in the opening whenever Fjolnir is in the approaching the king, right? And the whatever that is, that little ceremony. And 
Willem Dafoe, you know, jumps out and starts talking about in jest, right, about the queen uh, getting all this extra attention and uh, being swayed by other men or something like that. And the uncle gets so upset with him. And that should have been a nice tip of the hat because they put it right there on its face. Um, and yet, because of the way everything unfolds and the way they set you up with that promise, you just assume she needs saving that whole time instead of, oh, no, 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 this went according to plan. And then you get to the uh, the end and it just, it stings that much more, especially when you start hearing the backstory, not only the betrayal, but why you start to understand that the king that we thought was a good guy was also a big piece of shit. Like maybe the reason that he wasn't, you know, needing to go have sex with his wife is probably because he was out raping a bunch of women. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. he had no needs. They've already been right. met. Um, right. And it just recontextualizes everything you experienced in the front of the film. Um, and that's just a brilliant layered, like sequencing, like you were just saying. It's so wonderfully sequenced uh, in a way to distract you from the reality. Because if you have that whole, I'll save you, mother, and then you introduce the, a prophecy about betrayal, now suddenly it becomes easier to pick up on, oh, this is what's happening, right? Instead, reverse it, tip the hat, and then set us up. Um, that's that's just really wonderful writing uh, to mislead the viewer. God, so good. The other thing, I mean, that you said that I really love is it's nice to experience this kind of period piece without the romanticism. You know, they, they don't romanticize being a Viking. Uh, they don't romanticize the Middle Ages uh, or whatever period this would qualify as. And the, maybe the Dark Ages, I don't know. Um, 895 AD. Uh, it's clearly not the the boon of science and industry. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but but it's 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 dark, and that's the 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 grit and the beauty of what you know Eggers is doing is introducing us to a time where there really aren't any heroes. It's just pick your version of evil that you want to live with, uh, and it, I love watching this kind of movie, especially because it makes me appreciate the time we live in now. Like, yeah, you're right, man. I'm dead in this in this era. It doesn't matter at what point you're born in. There are no good points to live up to a certain era. Like, it's it's bad no matter what walk of life you're in. Now, you would much rather be a king in this era, I think, than a peasant or slave. Uh, but kings aren't living. We're we today. I am living a way better life than any king in history. Like there's no way you could get me to exchange places uh, with a king, you know, from a thousand AD. Like it's just no, no, thank you. Like you're constantly watching your back. You're making the worst decisions, um, and you're just as likely to die of whatever dysentery as anybody else. Yeah, <laughs> like it was terrible for everyone. But on the spectrum, you'd much rather be someone in the aristocracy, I guess, than than someone not. Uh, but what are the odds of that? Yeah, not good. Not good. Um, and judging by my lack of knowledge of my own family history, I certainly did not descend from kings and queens. <laughs> you never know, man. You never know, I guess. But uh, I feel pretty good about that one. Um, and so, yeah, I love I love sitting in this kind of reality. Like you said, these guys for sport just killed some people. Like we're... Hey, we're rowing. We're bored. We're bored of rowing. We're bored of beating on our our buddies or slaves. I still don't know what Skarsgård's uh, role was. He clearly wasn't a chief, uh, but 
he didn't seem to have a lot of say in what was going on. He just kind of acted like everyone else. And I love, I love the presentation of that. I think you're right. I didn't even really chew too hard on that moment. And it's dark. Like we're just murdered to pass the time. <laughs> like, good God. Uh, luckily we have, you know, crappy iPhone games now. <laughs> but, but the other thing you <laughs> threw out, like the burning that little hut, I, I chewed on that for a bit because uh, Charlie was throwing out the idea. Like, I'm curious to see how Robert Eggers spends $90 million. Apparently this had like a $90 million budget. I haven't looked it up, but that's a lot of money. Um, And one of the things that, you know, he clearly had to spend a lot of money on other than getting someone like Nicole Kidman. I don't think she comes cheaply despite what her character would have, you know, Uh, she, she does not come cheap and she alone probably, 10 million, 15 million. I don't know. I don't know what her box office worth is, but the other thing is set design, right? You're building all these sets. Probably maybe you luck out and there's a few historical sets that have been used and reused by other productions or I don't know if they're, I don't know if they have reenactors the way we have them in America. Uh, You can find reenactment of civil war people that are in probably world war one, world war two. Uh, that have all these uniforms and maybe even have some bunkers and stuff pre-built for the reenactments that as a filmmaker, you could go and take advantage of uh, and, and save yourself, you know, a few million dollars in, in budget uh, building these things from scratch. Uh, I don't know if they had that over in Iceland or, or wherever else they may have been recording, but short of that, you're building all this stuff from scratch and that scene where they burn the hut down. I, I feel like that's a really good place to spend the extra 50 grand and or 100 grand, however much hundreds to build that hut out of like metal. And now you can shoot this multiple times um, because that if you have that kind of budget, why would you risk that shot? And there are times when filmmakers say we got one opportunity at this. Let's not screw this up. We're going to have 10 cameras and, you know, we'll do what we can. But you can only burn this house down and we can only detonate this building one time. Right. Uh, Michael Bay's done that a few times and I get it. Those things happen in this case. I don't know that that needs to happen. You could build it out of metal and have a way to reset the shot so that, okay, let's, let's get five takes out of this. Um, and that way, you know, you can get your blocking. You can, you know, have as many opportunities to nail the scene as you want, because that's a nice long take. They do a really good job of, having a ton of long takes, not necessarily what I would call a one per se, where you're doing all this crazy stuff like that intro shot for that raid. They set it up as a one right? You, you have this beautiful behind shot where you see him grab the spear and throw it. Like that is an epic moment and right to use that in the trailer because it tells you everything you would need to know. And then we see him scaling the wall. We have a few wipes, right? They, they, they have a shield wipe, where maybe they use it, maybe they don't. You have all uh, where the shield of a foreground character kind of moves really close into the camera. Then you have another wipe where we move through the wall. Maybe that's a wipe, maybe it's not. Maybe they still are just on a winner. And then they don't cut, though, until uh, he jumps down um, and begins this whole other winner where he's going through and like he feels people attacking him. It's this interesting thing where... He's not staring down his attackers. Instead, you can kind of feel him seeing the field of view, right? His peripheral, his eyes, I imagine, are just wide open as he's taking in as much light as he can to see anything coming at him. And so whenever someone 
from the left suddenly jumps in. He meets the block and you have all these things happening. And then I don't think that all it might, but I think there's another cut before we go into the the burning hut, but it just makes sense to me. Why not spend the extra hundred grand or whatever it costs to paint metal in a way that doesn't, you know, destroy the color so that you can reset uh, the straw. Cause it just looks like straw to the audience. Maybe it's not, or maybe it is straw and you just completely redecorate the, the, the hut between takes. I don't know. I doubt it, but maybe Robert Eggers is a madman. So you really never know with his, you know, uh, approach to authenticity, but that's a, that's a great way. The other great thing is shooting on location, man, this movie would not be what it is without locations. And it's both the most expensive and the cheapest thing you can do. It's really expensive. If you're flying out all these A-list actors, right? Getting Anya Taylor joy out there, getting Alexander Skarsgård, Nicole Kidman, Willem Dafoe. That's not cheap. Like you're not only paying for their pre-production time to, to get the look right. Um, and make him look like an incredibly built Viking. Uh, but you also have to fly out all your gear and you have to, you know, location scout all these incredible locations. Uh, and so it's expensive if you're shooting this kind of film, but it's so much cheaper if you're someone like us, like for me to hire, you know, some random people that now it's still going to cost me something to get these people in into a nice location, but it's not going to cost me Nicole Kidman money. And yet the production value you get out of a great location uh, is just astronomical. Uh, you can't help but take note and say locations are what's going to upgrade you first and foremost. If you can do it in a location, that'll save you so much money uh, in set design, set decoration. Like, let's just find an incredible place. And now we can just bring wardrobe and a horse, like, which come with their own expenses. Uh, but you cannot replace the location. Um, that's going to upgrade your film, upgrade the quality. That's one of the things I usually spend the most time on, even in my own small $5,000 projects, $10,000 projects, is just location scouting. I'll run around Texas looking for the right location just so that I can upgrade the film's visual quality uh, without spending anything more than gas. Like that's gas money and time. And that's so much cheaper uh, than trying to make something look better than it is. Uh, yeah, I, I don't know if you spend a lot of time finding the right locations for your projects, but I think that's just the best possible use of time and, and pre-production uh, budget. Yeah, most of, most of my stuff is the location is what it is. Like mm. it's not you as creative yeah. an outlet as what you've got. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, I couldn't agree more. More. The other thing they do is obviously cinematography wise, a lot of natural lighting. This is very the witch um, and probably lighthouse, uh, but it just seems that his style. I don't imagine they had a ton of ad added lighting instead. You know, some of these days look overcast. And so the, the hard thing with shooting overcast is you could bring in additional lighting to, to create that contrast. That probably isn't going to hurt. It's going to help. Um, and then maybe sky replacement in, in post. But I think the other easy thing to do is just bring in a lot of neg fill where you'll bring in, you know, black duvetine or uh, a four by four floppy, something like that, and put it in, in close ups, especially put it right up, you know, close to the, your actor so that you can cut down some of the light. And now you're creating dimension um, so that you have something that looks like it belongs in a film. The last thing you want is to hand your colorist an image that has no texture or depth. 
but if you do those things, now you're giving them a lot more room to create contrast and uh, dimensionality into the image and post uh, because it's halfway built into the image already. Uh, and now it's like, okay, we'll, we'll go into DaVinci. We'll, we'll mask out their face uh, and separate it from the background. And now you can start leveling and creating a little more dimension that way as well. Um, and just fine tuning. It might be a lot more fine tuning in post, uh, but who knows this, they did, they did a lot. It looked like few shots were either day for night or maybe yeah. they were shooting at a time of year where there is no day and there, or maybe there is no night. Uh, it, it was just hard to tell in that area of the world, you get these really long days that the, maybe there's not, not a hard sun, but uh, it's, it's not exactly pure pitch black. And so what happens in that case is you do a lot of sky replacement, like, Oh, we're going to insert stars where there are no stars in, in this shot. Uh, and so I imagine they did a ton of sky replacement in this, but hard to tell without actually diving in and, and reading into his notes. But that's the way I probably would have approached that uh, if I'm them. Now, the one thing they may have done is bring in fire lighting. It didn't look like that light was firelight to me. It may have been, but I don't know how they get that. But maybe, maybe, I don't know. I assume that they brought in some flickering, whatever, LED lights or something like that, though. Uh, probably just a little easier um, to to maneuver, but yeah, yeah, I imagine firelight is really hard to shoot with because it's so it's so flickery, like it, it's un completely unruly. And so huh. you know, if you're trying to light an entire room somewhat evenly so that you can see people's facial reactions, well, you know, especially if it's like an, like the ones. I mean, I'm sure there were a bunch of fire lit scenes, like a ton of them in this film. But like the one specifically is with him and his mother in that hut. Yeah, exactly. That's the one I was thinking of, too. It wasn't very flickery. It was very like steady and and kind of like like even, Yeah. you know, throughout. And I just remember thinking, I didn't think during, but now that you're talking about it, it makes me think like that was very kind of like smooth. Uh-huh. It probably wasn't firelight, uh, you know, like now that I think about it. But also, that was the brilliance of this film for me was that it didn't have to be perfectly physically accurate because it was a little bit fanatical. Yeah, it was a little, you know, and so I expected some some things that weren't exactly, I don't know, completely accurate like that light kind of lighting, and that was okay with me. Like I just didn't notice it as as much. So totally. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, the tone was there. And so you can cheat where you need to cheat. Um, no one's going to be the wiser because we're already so invested. And you've already sold us so hard on the era that there's nothing left to do but just sit and be consumed. But there's still actual firelight shots, obviously, like the bonfire when we're mm-hmm. when he's backlit. And that's straight inspo for me because I'm working on some similar stuff, some similar imagery. And I love seeing those kinds of images and saying, okay, oh, nice. He went really, really wide. Like that's a wide shot of everybody's full body against the fire. Um, That's nice. But it's such a hard job creating cinematography that is that specific. There's not a, I didn't get the sense there's a lot of ad hoc, you know, shooting going on. Everything looked very particular and specific and planned and it was hard to tell what is cg and what's not um there's this shot oh my god and it just blew my mind both times where it's this beautiful winter on the boat when he decides 
I need to go back in order to save you. And he's talking to Olga and he dives off the boat and we're sitting there with, with Olga and she's like so upset and distraught. And then immediately resolve takes over and she starts uh, like a, I don't know if it's an incantation or just a promise or a, a, a swear or an invocation. Like it's, it's hard to tell, but we stay with her. And then she starts screaming and, and, you know, swearing to the wind or, or invoking the wind. And right when she finishes, like she throws her hands up and this huge gust of wind hits the, the sail. And I was, I was just like beside myself. I was like, I have no idea what just happened here, but my God, that was amazing. Um, because the timing, the timing was absolutely impeccable. Uh, and so it could, it could have been rigging. It very well could have been, Hey, let's rig up a bunch of wire. And so that we can get just the perfect billow out of this sail, or it could have been CG and there was no mast there at all. I have no idea, but it looked real. The lighting to it looked real. Yeah. I clueless. Yeah. I loved that. Dude. I loved that moment. It was, it was, this isn't just like the life back then. Everyone has to make hard decisions in the moment immediately. And you have to get over shit immediately. So her, she didn't want him to leave. She wanted them to just have a life together. And the moment he left, she screamed for him not to leave. And the moment he left, she made the decision. All right, I'm going to do this spell or incantation and we are going to get where we're going faster. And so she does the spell, the, the, yeah, the, the wind hits the sail and she's like, okay, we're going, he's gone. Now we're going and I'm going to protect my, my children. Right. It was, I totally agree. I, it's so easy to immediately cut off the boat, you know, to him swimming and they eventually do that, Mm -hmm. but it's almost like a finished story for her character of a resolve to make his sacrifice worth it. Right. I've, I've, you know, I've I've made that decision instantly. I can't stop him from going. So we're going this way. It was so good. So good. And then what about the the gates of hell fight scene? How amazing. Like, honestly, you know, I, I sit there and I watch it and you, you know, you think of one of the, star wars films and how bad that was and how good this was you know we find out during that they're both naked and you know uh, because there's nothing to hide you know one or both of them will die and and it's like there's they just are just so (laughs) epically amazingly executed in not only choreography and what happens but also uh in the lighting how do you light for that? I mean, obviously it's backlit because of the the lava, but I mean, I can still make out a lot of their features, a lot of the the muscle tone, a lot of, you know, like, it, yeah, it was just unbelievable. The madness of that scene. I was like, he didn't film inside a volcano, did he? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. You didn't think like he didn't. This isn't practical, right? Like, <laughs> right. Uh, I would imagine. I don't know if I'm if I'm doing that scene I'm like. What's the best way to to create the reality of this? I am probably doing a virtual production set. Like I'm building out this texture of the floor and I'm surrounding it with, you know, virtual production screens so that we can yeah. get all the, the, the visuals right. And then in post, I'm adding all this crazy amount of haze and, you know, a lot of flourishes to sell the kind of the heat 
because you have these beautiful heat uh, waves kind of creeping across the screen. Um, and it's just, yeah. And I, it took my breath out whenever he cut his head off and I'm like, Oh my God, he, I thought he was done. I didn't know what was going to happen. I love feeling that as an audience member is to say, I don't know what happens next. And I see he won and he, he get, has that berserker moment where he starts like firing himself up and mm. the performance there is amazing. Uh, Agreed. and he gets up, fights him off, gets his head. And I'm like, Oh my God, he's good. He's going to, he's going to return and he's going to, you know, be with Olga again, uh, which is what I really wanted. And then, two things happen of course the guy falls down and lets go of the sword and you realize almost slowly it took me a, a, a couple of beats to realize oh the sword isn't the sword isn't moving he stabbed him no yeah i was the same <laughs> oh what a great like gut punch moment um but the other thing i like that happened there is i love that fall from fuel near like that felt one of the things that always bothers me with death scenes, uh, especially something as dramatic as getting your head lopped off, is you can feel the controlled fall of an actor. And yeah. it always pulls me out just a little. And depending on the film, it's not, maybe not that big a deal, or maybe it is. You know, the more dramatic, the, the bigger a deal it is. Uh, but you have to commit uh, because without your head, there's no way to control. You have no control over your body. And so there's this really great looseness chicken quality of you know the the way his body kind of flops and shivers uh is just i thought phenomenal uh but then of course the 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 gut punch of realizing amleth is gone and that moves you into this other beautiful sequence of him hearing the the voice of his wife as he uh as the the horse rides out to to, to him and he rides back and i love that we never see him get into valhalla that's always one of those little decisions you have to make uh, in any, on almost any edit, especially at the end of a scene. Do you see the character leave or do you see them beginning to leave? And then you cut before they exit the frame. Um, that's always a, an odd choice because there's a slight awkwardness to either one of those. If you see them leave, now you're leaving the audience with an empty frame. And what does that tell? What does that feel like? Or do you cut before they exit the frame and you just imply a thing? Uh, and it depends on what you're leaving and what you're going to all those factors kind of come in and for this i want to say that's the last shot of the film and we never see him get into valhalla um, and i think that's beautiful because in our mind he's always getting into valhalla he's always right there and we're seeing and imagining what that moment feels like for him and it's just a nice emotional beat to to imprint on the audience as you as you leave the film Agreed. And and the shot of the tree right before that, mm. um, from his eye, you know, we see the tree and it, it scrolls up to his two children. And the whole time they've been talking about a a woman on the throne, the, the queen. And I thought it was Olga the whole time, but it's his daughter. And we get that close up on her and we stay with that for a few seconds as, as in he's not shy to give you something like a, a moment with this thing you know and a, a lot of times in movies like this you don't get that moment you just have to piece it together and you know how we are we like that kind of thing and yeah. I, I'm, I'm not don't shy away from it but in in a movie that's as layered as this I, th I feel like in some moments you kind of need that and we had that they gave it to us and then yeah you're, I love that we don't see them actually ride in Valhalla too I think that's a, a great choice but yeah so good I, I, I totally agree with the fall because it felt 
very awkward for both of them. Yeah. You know, it was like, oh, God, ah, that had to hurt your knees or whatever, you know, because he falls backwards. <laughs> yeah. uh, and so, uh, yeah, but I totally agree. So good. Yeah, there's yeah. it's it's a really well executed film. It's not maybe the kind of thing you want to watch on repeat, um, yeah. but it's honest. I think I that, that was kind of my bottom line interpretation is this felt like a really honest telling of a really brutal era. And we could probably stand a little more of that. We get enough of the Disneyfication of, you know, period pieces. We, we also need to be reintroduced to uh, the brutal reality uh, of history. And so. Agreed. I couldn't, I couldn't agree more that the whole time watching that, I was like, we live in an amazing time. <laughs> amazing time. Everybody talks about how bad the world is. You guys yeah. shut up. Yeah. That is absolutely not true. The world is incredible. And amazing. I mean, like, <laughs> I could just list 30 things, uh, you know, off the top of my head right now as to why. Yeah. And this movie exploits that very, very well, you know, it just tells a that brutal story. And I, I, I agree, I couldn't watch this again. And I remember thinking that, like, I don't want to watch this again, but I'm so glad I watched this. Yeah. You know, yeah, so, yeah. <laughs> totally. Um, yeah. Obviously, there's always work to be done. But sure. my God, let's not, you know, look the, the gift horse in the mouth kind of thing. Nice. So that's all I got. What uh, what are you going to recommend this week? Oh, yeah. So this week I was trying to stick with the Viking thing. And uh, there's not really a whole lot of like good, like really super amazing uh, Viking films that I, you know, want to recommend necessarily. But uh, the 13th Warrior is probably the best one that I could that I could uh, come up with and I love Antonio Banderas's performance in it. I feel like the, you know, there's some things that could have been done better. Like the other warriors, their characters could have been, they were maybe underdeveloped a little bit, but as a story, I thought that it, it told the two sides really well. You know, it was, wasn't just like a very one-sided story. So I, I enjoyed it. And, and it's not like super, super old and annoying. It's actually pretty, pretty, you know, you know, current or whatever, but uh, yeah, so I'll recommend The 13th Warrior. Nice. I'm going to recommend You Won't Be Alone. It's a new film out starring uh, Numi Rapace. And it's, if you if you really loved uh, The Northman, I think you would really love You Won't Be Alone. It's it, a lot of similar ideas, completely different culture. I want to say it's exploring like Turkish culture from, I don't know, the same era, maybe even seven, eight hundred AD. I mean, it's it's really old. Um, in that way and it explores some of the mythos it's beautiful it's ethereal but there's still enough story to kind of grab onto but it does leave you with your thoughts a lot in a way that i found beautiful it's filmed in this beautiful natural light kind of way uh and i i left there feeling really inspired from watching that and so i enjoyed it it's it's a patient film so you need to walk in with your patient hat on (laughs) uh but i think you'll enjoy it and there's a lot of really brutal and beautiful uh elements to it for sure um nice stay tuned for next week we're going to kick off a series uh periodic series on asian cinema uh we're going to begin with chung king express uh it's from the hong kong filmmaker Wong Kar Wai. Uh, so stay tuned for that. Go check it out and be prepared to discuss class. Um, and uh, if you're enjoying the show, don't forget, subscribe, drop us a review on 
iTunes or wherever you get your podcast and leave us a note. If there's something you want us to talk about, uh, the kind of thing you find interesting, uh, we can always dive a little deeper. Yeah. And so if you want to leave a note on this episode, you can do that at thepestlepodcast.com slash the Northman. And today's quote of the day is from Dan Carlin. History is the autobiography of a madman. Yeah. So, so watching this, my my first thought was, my God, this feels like Dan Carlin like made a film uh, because it has all the kind of brutal savagery that you would expect from uh, a Viking story. Uh, that it doesn't feel romanticized like we were talking about. And so Dan Carlin, and I guess I'm, I've also just recently finally started listening to Dan Carlin here and there. He's he's not a hard listen, but he's a time consuming listen. And so if you don't have the ability to string together like a five hour podcast uh it can be hard to dive into dan carlin's uh, hardcore history if you've never you know listened to it and so yeah and i was just curious what interesting quotes and he's got a lot uh but this one i thought stood out because yeah history is the autobiography of a madman history we tend to forget because of how good we relatively have it uh by historical comparison like we, we, we tend to forget how brutal and unforgiving history has been uh, writ large. Like it's hard to pick an era out of history where everything was cool. I, I recently was going back through and I read Plato's The Republic, where it's a conversation between Socrates and all these other philosophers. And he comes so close to saying really good things. And then he says really terrible things. And um, they had slaves. And uh, and it, I was telling you, Todd, I was like, there's this interesting moment when you start to think they're going to understand equality. Like Socrates is about to go all in on equality. And he's talking about how, hey, if we're building the perfect society, y'all aren't going to like this. Y'all going to laugh at me and think I'm an idiot. But women should have just as much ability to go and pursue their interests as men like they should be able to to be out and working and creating things and um and 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 doing a you know contributing to society in their their own way and the the people around the philosophers are sitting around thinking they're like yeah you know what that is kind of wild but you might have you might be onto something if we're for being honest with ourselves but obviously they could never be as good as a man. <laughs> and he's like, well, psh, yeah, of course women could never do anything as good as a man. What? Did, let's not yeah. be over the top here. <laughs> and I was just like, wow, bro. So close. You're so close. Um, but yeah, so far. And so there's all this interesting, and that's just history. History is unforgiving, you know, in so many ways. And it's easy to kind of forget about that. And so it goes back to the thing we said a few times, like, I appreciate Robert Eggers just kind of having this, this brutalist approach to uh, a period piece. And I love it. That's, I mean, I like darker subject matter. And so this fits very well with all my wants. I love mythos. I'm not particularly big on like Viking and Norse mythology. Um, I'm more into Greek stuff, but it's, it piques my interest to be able to sit in and hear the way they invoke it and the way they, they think about their lives and Odin brought him home, didn't he? Um, and there's yeah. just this beautiful call to their gods and uh, to their deities. Um, but, and yet there's these other brutal realities like the, 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 the sport that they invent, right? They play the craziest game of polo you can imagine. Right. And I'm just sitting around thinking like, you know what? I think this game could probably use a few more rules. <laughs> like, 
like yo i get it it's it's entertaining but you know maybe one where not everyone has to die except one person so we missed one the big guy in that game is that did you recognize him is that half door yes it wasn't until this very second because yes. i recognized he has this uh i don't know if, if he he's going through something where he his mouth is half paralyzed um yeah and i and I saw that, and I, I recognized it, but I absolutely could not pin it down yeah. until just a second, um, and it jumped out at me. That's so, so he is good. Icelandic, right, and he, yeah. Nordic, and he, he played uh, the mountain in Game of Thrones, uh-huh. was the strongest man on the planet for a couple of years, uh, is a gigantic dude, and he plays the, the, main, the main guy who just kills everyone in that game and he's huge but they also kind of undersold how big he is <laughs> yeah yeah that's true but the our main character what's his name uh, uh amblith yes yes no yeah well, he's a he's huge big he is huge in this game in this this film they did an amazing job yes they downplayed the mountain for sure because he's like seven feet tall and 350 pounds of pure muscle but and by the way, he is he's much more muscular now than he ever has been. He's leaned up a lot. Oh. Um, so he's leaned up a lot, but they cover him up in this like, you know, that that garb or whatever. Uh-huh. But our main character is gigantic. I mean, they do a really good job of doing a lot of upshots when uh-huh. he's just standing there. Yep. He hunches over a lot. His lats are gigantic. His back is like all traps is, and lats are traps and lats and out. They're just huge. They find they. They, in the, whatever training they did, they did it really, really smart. You don't really notice his gigantic arms. Mm. You notice his lats, his traps, the things that make you really look looming and and like overly large, right? And it's not really an arm thing. It's the it's the torso, it's the upper torso and the the top of the neck that like actually makes you feel. I seem larger. Yeah, and I suspect they built it that way because of rowing, right? If you're right, exactly. If you spend all that time rowing, uh, which, yep. by the way, I just bought a concept to. I finally pulled. You the did buy yeah, it. There yeah. you go. Good, um, good for you. Yeah. Uh, you're gonna get super. I fit. saw the Northman. I had to do some rowing. <laughs> no. uh, <laughs> and hmm. yeah, so you you know that rowing, I assume, is going to build a lot of Latin trap because your traps aren't just the thing sticking out of your neck uh they also run down the middle of your back uh and so make those huge and of course he's he's a tall guy i'm pretty sure he's a big guy uh, but they cut his body fat down right and so he's probably a good nine ten percent uh body fat yeah i don't it's common i don't know if he took anything but it's pretty common in hollywood like you have deadlines to me so Maybe bump a, a little test or something. Uh, I don't know if he had to do that because I think he's he's always seemed to me undersized. I feel uh-huh. like he's never really trained as hard as he probably could for size. I don't know if that's intentional to play because he doesn't want to get pushed out of some of these roles that he wants, right? He plays a lot of these husband and um, interesting characters that aren't jacked. And so yeah. I feel like maybe it wasn't that hard for him to add you know 15 pounds of muscle because it's probably always been lurking there waiting for him um, if he would just get into the gym and then like you said they shot him in a way that emphasized all that stuff uh those two things combined my god but and and how about how about fuel he had some hams on him man (laughs) 
Oh my gosh, man. <laughs> that dude's hands were uh, lush. My God, bro. Uh, lush. <laughs> <laughs> Agreed. Indeed. Oh. Nice. Okay. I'm, I'm, no. I'm anyway, done. yeah, th- this is so so much fun. I absolutely adored this film. Uh, hard second watch, possibly, but su- such a. I'm glad it exists for sure. Yeah. So yeah, thank you for joining us, uh, and make sure to subscribe. Join us on, on iTunes. Review us. Share us with your friends. All that stuff, because uh, all of it helps. And if you have uh, a film that you'd like to hear us review, please let us know. We'd love to hear from you. And uh, like Wes said, join us next week for Chunking Express. Until next time, I'm Todd. I'm Wes. Go watch some movies. That dude's hands were lush.